following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. We'll take your Bibles and go to the New Testament book of 2 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 3 tonight, verses 10 through 13. It seems that the faster life comes at us, the more impatient we can become. Modern cars and highways allow us to get around with such a rapid pace that just a few years ago was unimaginable, yet road rage boils over every day. As I was preparing the message for tonight, it was Monday, I simply went to the WSPA website and the headline at the time was man hit by vehicle after road rage incident in Greenville County. Deputies are investigating after a man was hit by a car in Greenville County Sunday night. Greenville County Sheriff's Office is investigating after deputies say a man was run over following a road rage incident on Highway 101. The 911 call was made at about 11.20 p.m. by a person who ran over someone in the Exxon parking lot, deputies said. The person who was struck by the vehicle was transported to the hospital in serious condition. That's just one small example of road rage incidents you read about all the time. Similarly, impatience has gotten so bad that airlines have enlisted more air marshals and assigned them to every major airline so that unruly passengers can be arrested on the spot. And it seems like with that, you just see every day, airline passengers fighting back, complaining, assaulting flight attendants. Cell phones allow people to be in touch constantly in in ways that just a few years ago was, was science fiction. But if one of those phones doesn't work right, people fly off the handle at the unpleasant inconvenience of not having a working phone to make a call or send a text. And the faster computers get, the faster we want them to be. You only have 4 gigabytes of RAM, you really need 16 gigabytes. 200 megabytes per second internet speed, you really need one gigabyte per second internet speed. And while that might sound like a foreign language to you tonight, (laughs) I'm sure that you can identify with this constant craving for bigger and better and faster in almost every areas of our lives. Ironically, as I typed this sermon, uh, I did so on a laptop computer hybrid tablet, which just a few years ago would have filled a room the size of a vending machine. In many ways, the the kind of patience Peter writes about in this third chapter of 2 Peter is the kind that can help us not only get through the minor inconveniences of our lives that we all get frustrated with each and every day, but also the major spiritual ones that we focus on tonight. You see, those two are connected because if you get impatient with the little things of life, you're going to get impatient with the spiritual things of life. And so we need to nurture the fruit of patience, therefore, and and in all areas of our lives, try to strive to be Christ-like. Biblically, patience mostly has to do with long-term solutions. In fact, the Greek words for patience mean steadfast endurance and long-suffering. And it's not words that you would apply to the weight you would have in a doctor's office, say, for your appointment. But rather, they would apply to the entire view of the span of your life. So basically, the fruit of patience means learning to live gladly with your life the way it is. 
We could say the opposite of patience is a kind of restlessness that causes us to forever be craning our necks to see what's coming up, what's going to change, what's up ahead. And many people live this way. In fact, many people live wishing their lives away. Instead of enjoying their children at whatever age they are, they're always thinking and longing for the day when they're going to get older and they're going to be able to dress themselves. Or they're going to get older and they're going to be able to drive. Or they're going to get older and they're going to go off to college. Instead of investing ourselves in our present work, we sometimes can, can pass the day worrying about not getting a promotion or not getting the transfer or anything which we've longed for that doesn't happen. But all that suggests a basic unhappiness and discontentment. The present moment is forever ruined by the fact that we let ourselves be mostly occupied by some future event that we look forward to. And when you live this way, you tend to have a shorter fuse. You tend to lose your temper. If you're impatient with your job, you're also prone to explode at the little annoyances that come up in every job. If your job involves a lot of telephone work and you're trying to contact somebody and you keep getting their voicemail, it's easy to just want to slam the receiver down. Abiding frustration is a sign of impatience. The patient people are able to live happier in the present moment. And the reason they can do so is because they see the larger picture that God is at work. Patient people can hang in there because they sense that they are participating in something larger than just the present moment. They're planning for the future. They're investing themselves in something that will last forever. That's what Peter tells his readers. Already late into the first century, Christians are becoming impatient with the fact that Jesus has not returned. They were the first to start to understand and comprehend that Christ's return to bring his children home to be with him has not taken place. And so they start to regard the intervening time as meaningless and empty. And it's filled with suffering and discouraging setbacks. So they ask, what in the world is God waiting for? We didn't think Jesus would take this long. And in this, his last letter, Peter tells his readers, and, and we're able to read the, the truths by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to adopt a divine perspective on the return of Christ. Because as we looked at last week, God's time is not our time. God's blink of an eye is like many years to us. So let's read 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. Follow along in your Bibles. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. There's a lot about end times prophecy we don't know, we can't know. But there's a lot that we can know that Scripture has provided for us. So for prophecy to make sense, there are three days to look at. The day of man, Genesis 2.15. The day of man began in the Garden of Eden when God gave man the privilege and the opportunity to be good stewards of this planet. 
But when Adam and Eve chose to listen to Satan rather than to obey God, the day of man became a total unmitigated disaster characterized by famine, starvation, disease, war, and death, which continues to this day. The next day on the calendar is the day of the Lord. We see this in the first part of verse 10 of our text. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church and the start of the seven-year tribulation period. Through the period called the millennium, the day of, of the Lord starts bright for believers who are caught up in the air to be with Jesus. And oh, I hope I'm alive when Jesus comes back, don't you? Not to have to experience death, not to have to experience suffering, not to have to experience pain, but just to go and just, you're walking one day and he comes back and you're just lifted up to be with him. But then it turns dark for those who are are left behind, who didn't confess Christ. The great tribulation period begins with the rise of the Antichrist. And I'm glad we will not be here for that. The third day, seen here in verse 12, is the day of God. Look at verse 12 again. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This time begins after the millennium period when because of heaven and earth having been polluted by the presence of Satan and sin, the present earth and and heaven are done away with, replaced by a new heaven and a new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. Now look at the second part of verse 10. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That word translated roar speaks of a great noise and a wind of fire. And if the terms roar, burned up, dissolved, fire sound familiar, it's because they are all associated with nuclear radiation. On December the 2nd, 1942, this scripture suddenly took on new meaning for many who were reading and understanding what the scriptures were saying. For on that cold winter day on the University of Chicago's Stag Field, Robert Oppenheimer, Enrico Fermi, and Albert Einstein tested their theory that if uranium-235 was bombarded with neutrons, energy would be, would be released. And indeed it was. Moving the experiment to a desert in New Mexico on July the 16th, 1945, engineers were shocked when the 10-inch rail metal used to drop the first nuclear device was immediately vaporized, shooting debris seven miles into the air and 1,800 feet in either direction. With heat so intense that the surrounding sand was turned into glass. It was clear something ominous was taking place. The nuclear age was born. Finally, in August of that same year, the A-bomb was dropped over the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Many who read these verses prior to the Second World War, I'm sure, said, impossible. Elements can't burn. The whole earth can't be burned up. But the events of 1945 suddenly silenced all that. While the day of the Lord will indeed usher in the destruction spoken of here, I believe Peter's reference is to something even more devastating. Now what could be more devastating than nuclear war? Concerning Jesus Christ, Colossians 1 tells us that all things were made and are held together by him. 
There was one man who received his PhD in science and his thesis was on why the electrons do not collapse into the nucleus of an atom. The protons following the law of electricity with the attracting force of opposite poles. There's a double mystery. Why are the protons held together and why don't the electrons collapse on each other? And he wrote this thesis and his thesis was basically this, summed up in one sentence. They don't collapse into it because they don't collapse into it. (laughs) And he got his doctorate for that, okay? Now I'm sure a lot of research went into that and a lot of... uh, planning and and study but the fact is we just don't know by his own confession we don't know but there is an answer Hebrews 1 3 by him Jesus all things are held together you see if the Lord Jesus were just to release his hold for even one second this whole physical universe would just go up in one gigantic gigantic big fire and dissolve and dissipate it would all be over And we know that by Jesus, who holds all things together by the power of his word, there's going to come a day when everything's going to be dissolved. Everything's going to be obliterated. Everything's going to be wiped out with the day of the Lord. If everything materially will eventually be destroyed, the wise person strives for that which lasts eternally. Verse 11 is is not a question. It sounds like a question when you first read it, but it's actually a statement. Look at it. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you hear that? Do you see that? That's not a question. It's a a proclamation. It's It's a statement. Because everything's going to be dissolved around us, the elements, physically, everything, what sort of people we're to be are those that live lives of holiness and godliness. When our daughters were young, we, uh, we bought them a trampoline. And they enjoyed that trampoline for years. It was when we first moved here. I remember going to Academy, I think it was, Melody, to uh, get that trampoline. I put it together. And, uh, I think the, some of the, girl, the girls helped me out. Well, this past week, since they're now 20 and 16 years old, they're not using that trampoline like they did when they were 5 and, and 9 and so we dismantled it. We took it apart. And it was interesting. We thought about giving it away. We tried to give it away to some people. And, and I'm kind of glad we didn't because when I started taking that thing apart Monday on Memorial Day, it just started disintegrating. <laughs> I mean, it just started falling apart. And, 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 and I was thinking about this passage. I was thinking about our study. I was thinking about the future. I was thinking about what the scripture says. One day, everything's going to disintegrate. One day, everything's going to dissolve. And we know that. And the wise person will plan for that by investing our lives in what really count. Relationships. People. A relationship with God. A relationship with one another. Rabbi Cham Herzog, a prominent scholar and lover of the Torah, lives in the old section of Jerusalem in a small apartment containing only a chair, a desk, and a bed. Rabbi, is this your house? asked a lady from New York who came to visit. Yes, replied the rabbi. Well, where is your furniture? The rabbi looked at this wealthy American lady and said, where's your furniture? She said, I didn't bring my furniture. I'm just traveling. The rabbi smiled and said, ah, so am I. You see, the message of Scripture from cover to cover is that we are pilgrims and sojourners on this earth. This is not our real home. Our real home is in heaven. 
So we should be investing there where the Bible says rust does not destroy and thieves do not break in and, and steal. Yes, God can bless us with cars and, and homes and computers and stuff. But we're not to make those our high priority because they're just going to burn up. They're going to dissipate. They're going to dissolve. They're going to be destroyed. Keep your eyes on the big picture, Peter says. Look for the coming day of God and live for that day. Live like today could be the day Jesus returns. Now, how do we do that? How do we live lives of godliness and holiness? Well, purity characterizes the life of one who believes this could be the hour of Christ's return. 1 John 3, 3 tells us that he who looks for Jesus' coming purifies himself. Have you ever um, gotten in your car and, and you're going to, to some place, a destination, and you realize halfway there that you don't have your license with you? You left your purse at home or you left your wallet at home or you just don't know where it is. Now, that's a terrible feeling, but you know what? What I found, now I don't know if I can speak for you, but I can speak for me. If that happens to me, and it has happened on occasion, I drive as carefully as I possibly can drive. Because I know if I don't, I'm going to get pulled over. And I know I don't have my license with me. And I know I could get fined for that. I could get penalized for that. So too, it's amazing how purity will characterize the life of someone who believes this could be the day, this could be the hour that Christ returns. Live your life for Christ like you're driving without your driver's license. The solution to pure living in this world is not imitation, just be like somebody else. It's not Pure living, uh, like isolation, don't have associations with anybody in the world. The ability to live pure in a fallen world is insulation. Staying close to God, He can keep us in a polluted world. He can keep our minds, our lives, our hearts pure. Now, how does that happen? We make a vow to live. We make a vow to live according to the way Scripture speaks. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So we have to resolve this issue in our mind. Before we can live pure lives, what's going to be my standard? What am I going to base a pure life on? Am I going to make a vow to God's word as a standard for my life? Or am I going to try to make up my own rules? My own standards? Does God know more about my life or do I know more about my life? That's really the issue. And God says several things in his word that aren't very popular in our world today, especially when it comes to sexual relationships. We might wonder, why does God say that? Because he knows more about sex than we do. He understands the implications far better than we do. We have to decide, God, when I don't understand and when I don't like it or it's not popular, I'm still going to do what your word says regardless of what anybody else says because you're the creator. You have a plan and a purpose for my life. You know what's best for me and for others and you love me. And even if it doesn't make sense or it's not popular, I'm going to make a commitment to live a pure life according to what the Bible says. Rather than just trying to meet my basic needs. Until we're willing to make that kind of vow, we're not really ready to live pure in a fallen world. We can only be pure by following God's standard and adjusting our thinking. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it 
flow the issues of life. Proverbs 23, 19 tells us, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guard your heart in the way. Every temptation of the flesh starts in the mind. An open mind tend to get, tends to get filled with garbage. So we need to watch what we let our minds dwell on. Never, ever just sit in your recliner at home or lie in bed with the TV on and just drift in and out, okay? And here's why. You never know what's coming on next, okay? And if you're there in your recliner and you're kind of dozing and you have it on a channel, listen, an hour later, that show you were watching, it's going to be off and you don't know what's coming on next. And even though you're kind of out of it, I dare say what comes on, if it's garbage, it's going to feed your subconscious mind. Evil thoughts always precede evil actions. James 1, 14 through 16 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. The one who looks for the Lord's coming takes a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously. In other words, the one who looks for the Lord's coming doesn't get uptight about a scratch in your car or an insult from somebody who hurt your feelings or the rejection of the group because the person sees the bigger picture. But couldn't someone allege that Christian focus on God's kingdom is pretty much the same as, as wishing your life away? I mean, we're looking for this uh, heavenly kingdom to come. Don't Christians yearning for a future in a way isn't that not much different than the mother who lives for the day when her children will be out of the house or, or at an older age? In other words, what keeps the, the kind of kingdom focus we're talking about here from denigrating into something which makes believers so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good? And all those things could happen if we don't have a proper understanding of what biblical patience really means. You see, the fruit of patience in the Bible is not about sitting still. It's not about being passive. Patience is an active word in the spirit-filled Christian's life. Patience is not placidity, and patience is not passivity. Spirit-filled patience is perseverance in action. Somehow, in ways we don't always see or understand, we come to believe that we are participating in the heavenly kingdom that we are already citizens of tonight. And that helps us to continue on. That keeps us from despair. In the Bible, God's patience with us is what gives his compassion the chance to work in us. Over and over again in the Old and New Testaments, we read that God is slow to anger and that precisely that slow patience is what keeps him from snap judgments that we would regret if we made those. God's ability to stick with us who are desperately flawed mediates between God's judgment and his grace. And in a way, patience can have a similar function in our lives, but in a little bit different way between hope and despair. We believe in the reality of Jesus Christ, but for now, we continue to experience trouble. We continue to have emotional and physical pain, which sometimes comes very close to blocking our ability to recognize the reality of our faith in him. As such, patience is like a steel girder which lends strength and shape to the structure of our faith. Let me put it like this. Patience is like the spine which gives us posture and the ability to stand tall spiritually. 
Living life with purpose for Christ is an action that is precisely made possible because the kingdom of God is not some future reality only which one day will come into being. No, the kingdom of God is in our hearts. It's in our lives. We know this because Jesus lives there right now. We're citizens of God's kingdom. Not later, not tomorrow, not next year. No, now. That is what girds us up and accordingly keeps us going and not give in to despair. Of course, we, we do this in a sinful world where we still mess up and we still fall. And we see the irony that the fruit of patience does not rule out frustration, but keeps us going in the midst of frustration. If we patiently work toward a vision of the kingdom that is perfect, we'll never get there. But if we work toward a, a vision of the kingdom that works in the messy part of life, when things aren't going the way we hoped they would go, and we're frustrated, that's what Peter wants us to see. Patience keeps us from undermining the kingdom by, by rash responses and actions. It, it, it's working out our salvation. Now, the flavor of the Greek text here is we don't look for the day of God inactively, but we can actually help speed up its coming. Look at verse 12 again of 2 Peter 3. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Someone might say, well, I thought God was sovereign. Well, he is. But in Scripture, we see a sovereign God affected and impacted by his people and their prayers. And he sets it up. Before entering the promised land, the children of Israel sent 12 spies out to check the land. And because they chose to retreat in fear rather than advance in faith, they were destined to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, according to Numbers 13. You see, the, the children of Israel slowed down God's timetable by about 40 years. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, Jonah declared. But the people repented and God chose not to destroy the city in Jonah 3. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control. He's over everything. But he factors in his sovereign plan, the attitudes, the cooperation, the prayers of his followers. And knowing this, Peter says it right there. We can hasten the return of Christ. Are you tired of all the death and disease and depression? Have you had your fill of sickness and sadness and pain? If so, there's two ways you can bring this day closer when righteousness will fill the earth. First, the day of God is brought closer by our prayers. In teaching us to pray, Jesus taught us to ask that his kingdom come. That's precisely what one who heard him teach that prayer did. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly, to which John responded in prayer, Even so, Lord, come quickly. The same is still true. Prayer influences the timing of God, including the return of Jesus Christ. All this is a part of the Apostle Peter's bottom line. God in Christ is coming back. And it's been a while. Yet the end will come. A cleansing fire of renewal will sweep across the universe, creating a home of righteousness. But what does Peter do with that? Does he say, therefore, sit around, scan the horizons, sit on the sidelines, just wait for it to happen? No, that's not what he says at all. He pivots with the ultimate Christian hope. And he says, pray that Jesus will come back. 
It's not an easy world in which to have faith and hope. God knows that. Why else do you think he's given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us? We would never make it without that. Oh, I long for that day. I pray he'll come quickly. Secondly, the day of God is brought closer when we share. According to Acts 2.47, the Lord adds daily to the church such as those who are saved. Thus there is someone who is the last one to be added to the church to complete the bride of Christ one day. And when that last one gets saved, the body of Christ will be complete. He'll call his people home. So as a part of that, as we witness, as we share the gospel, as we share our faith, to be a part of the family of God for people, as we share with our friends, our associates, our neighbors, our co-workers, we hasten the day of the future coming of Christ. Hasten the day by your prayer, by the way you share. Live for eternity, for purpose, for peace. If heaven is real, then that is all that really matters. But if heaven is not real, then nothing really matters at all. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's all about heaven. That's not just my conclusion. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. This text of 2 Peter 3, 13 tells us to focus on heaven. We're to look forward to heaven. But you know, he doesn't say a whole lot about heaven. And I think one of the main reasons is it's impossible for us to completely get a description of what heaven's like. We get glimpses of it. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Let me give you an illustration or a word picture, okay? Suppose someone, uh, suppose I gave you a blank piece of paper with one dot in the middle, a black dot. How long would that hold your attention to look at that paper? Maybe a second, maybe a few seconds. A dot is pretty boring because it's one-dimensional, right? But suppose I make it two-dimensional. Suppose I add a series of circles and lines that I draw throughout the page and it resembles the face of a man. That'd be a little more interesting to look at. You'd still be bored after a short period of time. But let's say we made it three-dimensional. Not just a dot or a picture on a page, but a statue. A Michelangelo statue. Although that would definitely be more intriguing. You would look at it longer than you did the dot, longer than you did the face on the paper. But you'd tire of that as well. But how much more interesting than three dimensions is the fourth one, time and space. You could actually talk to a person. You interact with, interact with him. And that would be infinitely more interesting than any statue or piece of paper. See, that's the, what's, what heaven is like. It's a dimension we haven't seen. We can't understand completely. It's called eternity. And it's going to make life here look like a dot on a piece of paper. Paul was given a sneak preview of coming attractions. And it was this, after this, that he declared, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The strongest instinct in man, it's said, is survival. But the beauty of heaven can overcome and overpower even that strongest of instincts. A person lying in a hospital struggling with no real hope of ever getting better just releases their soul to be with the Lord. I've seen it time and time again. And let me encourage you tonight. 
Based on the word of God, I promise you that our loved ones who have gone on to be with Jesus in heaven are not saying, is this it? No, they're saying, this is it. They're not saying, why? They're saying, wow. Truly, this is the place of righteousness. Truly, this is the right way, the right moment, and the right place for me to be. An important truth is that this intervening time is not empty. It's not meaningless. No, it's full with purpose and vision God is giving us. God is well aware that we live in this moment, in this time period. He knows what's going on and he wants us to continue for his glory and for his namesake. And to share Christ with as many people as we possibly can. Proper patience requires the fruit of love and kindness, compassion. It requires the ability to stick with it when life gets tough. As Americans, we are often easily frustrated with what we would call first world problems. Here are just a few examples. When you say something on social media, which you think is really clever, but nobody likes it. (laughs) When someone in your family puts dishes in the dishwasher before they unload it, Now you have to play the game of which ones are clean, which ones are dirty. When you run out of hot water for the shower because someone else took too long and used it all up. When you and your spouse can't agree on what temperature to keep the thermostat. When your phone battery dies before you get home from work. When someone is eating potato chips and crunching so loudly you can't hear what's being said on the television. That's really annoying. When you get chicken tenders in the drive-thru window but they forget to put in the dipping sauce that is so annoying you know for most of us the worst discomforts we face each week are pretty meaningless that's why it's so hard to relate to all that Jesus did for us when he came to earth and he suffered on the cross the Bible says consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance James 1 2 and 3 every time we patiently endure suffering whether it's something minor or whether it's something pretty significant we become a little more Christ-like but don't be concerned if you blow it sometimes you get impatient you lose your cool God's going to give you another chance And another chance and another chance to demonstrate the practice of the patience Jesus. You see, first world problems and real world problems, big or small, are no problem to God at all. Rather, each one is an opportunity for you and I to grow in Christ-likeness. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfordchurch.org. Blessings.